Father, I pray that we might understand this scripture and see it in a brand new light and apply the great lesson that we can learn to our lives that it might truly make a difference for the kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a meal with anybody famous? No? Oh, that's a pity. You did? Premier South Australia, that's pretty cool. I like that. I like that. I thought I was going to have dinner with someone famous once. Towards the end of last century, I went along to the World Masters of Business Congress, which was being held in the Entertainment Centre. And they had some uh, amazing speakers there. They had one chappy, he was a doctor, I forget what his name was, but he told us about AFDs, alcohol-free days. They were apparently very good for our livers. So he wanted all us young businessmen to, to make sure that our livers would last as long as we did. Then there was uh, Rene Rifkin. He came along and he told us, do not buy property. It's way overvalued. Buy shares instead. Well, he was a stockbroker, so I'm not surprised, really. Um, the other speaker, there was Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf of Gulf War fame. Do the right thing, gentlemen. He told us that for an hour, to do the right thing. So I figured, hey, I better do the right thing, whatever that might be, as long as you win, I guess. And then along came Mikhail Gorbachev. I can't remember what he said because he spoke in Russian and we had a translator. And, but completely utterly, I do not know what he was talking about. I can't remember that. But what I do remember was he was the last speaker. And he was going out to dinner in some flash restaurant afterwards. And one of us in that great auditorium of people would have opportunity to go and have dinner with him. It was going to be under our seat was a lucky ticket. So I reached under my seat and sure enough I felt something. It was someone's old chewing gum. <laughs> oh well. Nearly had dinner with Mikhail Gorbachev. It was pretty good. Today I want to tell you a story about a couple of guys who almost got to eat dinner with someone famous too. This is the wonderful story of the road to Emmaus. This is about the appearance of Jesus after the resurrection. And you know this story, the, the Road to Emmaus story. It's the evening of the Resurrection Sunday and two followers of Jesus, they're, they're not members of the, the immediate disciple band because that's now shrunk to 11 with the death of Judas. And, and these two guys, they're walking back home. They're headed to a little village called Emmaus and Luke tells us it's about seven miles from Jerusalem. So how long would it take people accustomed to walking anywhere to get seven miles? Well, I guess the average human being, old scale, he can walk three miles per hour. So it might have taken two or maybe three hours because it sounds like these guys were walking kind of slowly and sadly and shuffling their feet as they're talking to each other. Now let's assume that Jesus joins them about 30 minutes outside of Jerusalem. That would make sense because there's still, there's still quite, a, quite a crowd of, of people who, who came for the Passover and they're staying until Pentecost because both of these are very important feast days in the Jewish life. And the Jewish historian Josephus he recorded that in the first century, there were around about 256,500 sacrifices made in the temple for that particular Passover when Jesus was, was crucified. And he calculated that no more than 10 people would sacrifice together. So he arrives at a figure of approximately 10 times that number of sacrifices or about 2.7 million people he reckons were present in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people for a small city. I think it might be a bit high, but anyway... 
based on the size of Jerusalem. There are other scholars who estimate about, well, there'll be a crowd of over a million people crowded into the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this city normally had about 120,000 people. So it's packed. There are a lot of people. There's a big crowd in this relatively small city of that time. So my point is, talking about that, is that, is that Jesus could join these two disciples outside the city without being noticed because there are just people everywhere. And especially as it's getting late and everyone's hurrying home after a busy day. So Cleopas and, and the other unnamed disciple, they're heading home. Now undoubtedly with, they had been with the immediate group of disciples because they're amazed that their, their walking companion hasn't heard the news about Jesus. And even though crucifixions weren't unusual at that time around Jerusalem because Rome had crucified uh, 2,000 residents of Jerusalem during the uprising of Herod the Great and the crucifixion of Jesus had also gotten everyone's attention as to something's going on there and so they asked their companion who joins them on the road we know it's Jesus but they don't at that time they say are you only a visitor to Jerusalem? they're like you know mate don't you know what's been going on here? they would have said in the Aussie vernacular where you been? Have you missed what's happened in the past three days? And so they, they tell Jesus about Jesus. At first they back off a little bit and they say, oh, he's a prophet. But then they add, he, they add he, was, he was powerful in the things that he said and did. But, they say, and here their sorrow comes in, reveal, they reveal their profound sorrow, they crucified him. And these, these guys, they're, they're really disappointed. And they added, we had hoped he'd be the one to redeem Israel. Meaning, of course, overthrow the Romans. Restore the sovereignty of the nation. Establish again a king on the throne of David. That's what they'd been expecting. But, they said, it's been three days. In addition, they added that the women had a crazy story of Jesus being gone and angels appearing to them who said that Jesus was alive. But of course, two of the disciples, they had investigated the tomb. They found that the tomb was empty, like the women had said, but there were no angels and there was no Jesus. Then, Jesus, still unknown to these two guys, he begins to teach them. Now, of course, he gives them a Bible lesson. The Bible lessons wouldn't be like ours. They only had the Old Testament in those days. So he would have taken the law and the prophets and Jesus walks them through all the prophecies that tell about the Messiah. What a Bible lesson that would have been to be at. We can work it ourselves too if we read the Old Testament carefully. We look at all the prophecies and see they're, they're talking about the Messiah that was coming. But the most amazing question he asks them is this. He says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Of course, we understand exactly what he was talking about on this side of the empty tomb. We know what happened. But these two blokes, they didn't understand what had happened. And one of the reasons they didn't understand was because popular Jewish thinking of that day didn't allow for a suffering Messiah. That didn't, the, the suffering servant didn't go together with the Messiah in their thinking. Now, Isaiah talks about the suffering servant, but many of the Jewish scholars, they thought he was the one who was going to come before the Messiah came. Little did they know that the Messiah himself had to suffer and die and rise from the grave. So after all of this lesson, after having all of this pointed out 
they still didn't get it. But the hour now is getting late, and as was custom of the day, they asked a stranger who'd, been, who'd had nothing to eat to join them for dinner, and then, then offer him some shelter. So Cleopas and the other disciple, they asked Jesus to eat with them. Preparations are made. Food is placed on the table. And then Luke says this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. How many times had Jesus done this before? How many times have they eaten together, either out in the hills of Galilee or in a friend's home or with Mary or Martha or Lazarus or in a room like the upper room where they share the last meal together? Jesus begins his ministry eating and drinking. He does that. At the wedding of the, at, at Cana of Galilee, he turns water into wine. And all the guests there are amazed because usually the host serves the best wine first. And then when the guests are a little bit sozzled, you know, just get the cheap stuff now, it doesn't matter anymore. No, but this time, the wedding host, he saved the very best for the last. And Jesus feeds 5,000 on one occasion and 4,000 on another. And even on the hillside, the rituals are exactly, exactly the same. Jesus gives thanks to God. He breaks the bread. The disciples distribute it. And not only is there enough, but on one occasion, there's enough for 12 basketfuls of leftovers. A basket full of leftovers for each of the disciples who couldn't understand how Jesus was going to do this. How could he feed 5,000 people? And Jesus is also accused, because it's true, of eating with tax collectors and sinners. Apparently, they're two separate categories. To call a tax collector a sinner in the first century was a very big insult to sinners. <laughs> yes, that's the way things were in those days. Because the tax collector worked for the Romans. He's a traitor. He's not just a sinner, he's a traitor. We don't like those boats, they say. He's also accused of eating and drinking too much because his detractors, they call him a glutton and a drunkard. But for the people like Zacchaeus, that little tax collector bloke, you remember him? He plays host to Jesus for dinner. Jesus is a life-changing guest in his house. And then the last time Jesus eats with his disciples, Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he says, this is my body. Take it and eat. And at the blessing and the breaking of the bread, these two followers of Jesus recognize who he is. Not at the Bible study, while they're walking the road with him, but at the table where they are sharing fellowship together. That interests me. Because I would have thought it would be the other way around. Surely the Bible study would reveal Jesus, wouldn't it? I mean, that's what we do Bible study for, so we understand more about God. But it's when the bread is broken that they realize who Jesus really was. When the bread is broken, all of a sudden the Bible study begins to make sense. It's when the bread is broken and he handed them the pieces that he'd blessed, they knew then that the bread of life was the man standing before them. I want to go on to my third point this morning and, and, and look at the story of the broken bread. What do we make of this story of the broken bread today? How are we going to apply that? Because it's a great story. It's one of my favorite stories in the, about, the, the 11 or so appearances of Jesus. 
And I like this story because you can see it. You can imagine what's going on here. You can see the sorrow and the grief on the faces of these two disciples of Jesus. You can see the long, dusty road that they're taking back to their home, a home that possibly Jesus had visited before. You can see the three blokes talking on the road with one another, hands moving around as Jewish people would do, no doubt, shuffling their sandal-clad feet through the dust on a well-worn pathway. You can see the wonder and the delight on the faces of these two men, the joy when they realize who their companion has been all along. The energy that seizes them immediately upon recognizing Jesus because they turn and they run seven miles back. No walking now, they're bolting down the track. They run back, they tell the 11 of the original disciple band that when he broke bread, they knew who Jesus was. So what else does this story tell us today? Other than being a really good story and, a, and great characters and lots of drama in it, I think the thing that says to me that here is that Jesus is known best and recognized most quickly when he is offering us his hospitality. Even though it wasn't his house, Jesus assumes the role of the host. Even though these men didn't recognize him, he assumes that it is his responsibility to be hospitable. They've invited him, and now he returns their offer of hospitality with his own hospitality. And he does what he's done a thousand times before. He gives thanks to God, his Father. He blesses the bread. He breaks the loaf, and he gives it to each person present. Jesus demonstrates gratitude and bounty at the same time. He's thankful and there is enough. He acts to acknowledge the gift and the giver. And then he gives to those who need food. Brothers and sisters, there's something here that I can see for each one of us that we need to apply, that we need to take home, and something that we can do because it's in our hospitality that others can see Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? It's in our hospitality that others can see Jesus. Even if they can't see Jesus in our Bible studies or in our worship service, it's when we share table fellowship and take the risk of hospitality that Jesus can be most clearly seen. Hospitality is not about eating with friends and family. It's something different. Hospitality is about welcoming the stranger. Because when you welcome the stranger, you immediately risk rejection. You risk your reputation. What kind of person is this that you've invited to your dinner table? Risking all we are to show that those who have nothing, to show them who Jesus is. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Of course, we all know that we are all sinners. But in first century Judaism, there was a distinction made between the righteous and the unrighteous. The righteous were those who kept the law, like our friends the Pharisees. Of course, they are righteous by their own understanding of what that meant. But nevertheless, they were considered righteous, and that was the opposite of being a sinner. 
We have another good picture when, when Jesus tells the story of the two men who go to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, the other is a publican or a tax collector. The Pharisee prays and he says, Lord, I thank you that you have not made me like that man. The publican, he prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a difference. So Jesus eats with people whose hands aren't clean, whose lives are even worse. He eats with them because there's no one else who's going to represent God to them. And no one else who represents God will eat with them. The chief priests won't. The Pharisees won't. The Sadducees won't. No one will eat with these people because no one who was righteous wanted to eat with an unclean sinner. Because if you did that, you made yourself unclean. I guess you all know the story of Mother Teresa. She started a home for, for the dying in Calcutta. She went to people that no one else wanted. Not sick people who could get better and whose photographs would fill the pages of glossy magazines proclaiming the success of their mission. No, she opened a home for the dying. She went to the streets and she helped them come to a place where they could die attended by kindness and caring nuns and volunteers. Maybe you know the story about Albert Schweitzer. The, the, he saw two men beating a sick horse all the way to the stockyard where the horse was going to be slaughtered. And he kept that picture in mind of that poor animal in his head until he decided he was going to study medicine and go to Africa and be a doctor to people who couldn't give him anything. I believe that to live a life of hospitality is to welcome others into your life at great cost to yourself. That's real hospitality. Hospitality isn't just tea and cookies, right? No. Hospitality is sharing our lives with those who need us most. And those people are usually the ones you want least to do with. Hospitality is kindness, compassion, concern, caring, provision, openness, love. Hospitality is an act of unselfishness at great expense. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He practiced hospitality towards a Jew beaten beside the road. All the righteous types walked across the other side of the road and avoided him. Hospitality is welcome children into the circle of faith, realizing that we have to invest in them as parents and as community. And hey, your investment in your children is it paying off yet? It's a long-term one, isn't it? Even when you're grandparents. But we recognize we need to pass on something very precious to these little ones. When we practice hospitality, I believe that that is when the world sees Jesus in our lives and in our actions. It's one thing to feed the poor. It's another thing to eat with them. That's what Jesus did. And I find that challenge here in this scripture. I read a wonderful story. It's an American one, but it's a beautiful story about the Greater Nashville Arts Foundation. In the early 1990s, one of the projects of the Art Foundation was to sponsor a lunch for the homeless. But it wasn't, it wasn't a sandwich handout from the back of a van. The foundation conference room was open to business people and to the homeless who shared a meal together. And then they discussed the book that they were reading at the moment. No mention was made of the plight of the homeless. In that room, men and women who had lost their dignity because they lived on the streets, they reclaimed their dignity 
even if it was only for an hour, as they shared their thoughts on literature with one another, with men and women who were gathered around the table, and there was no separation. You had multi-millionaires sitting down with street people, sharing a meal and sharing what they were reading at the time. That's hospitality. When Jesus broke the bread, they recognized him. Wouldn't it be great if the same could be said for us as we pr practice hospitality in a world that seeks to divide us into categories rather than unite us in Christ? Brothers and sisters, my challenge for you after reading this scripture is to ask God to show you who can you share hospitality with this week. Don't let the week pass by without asking the Lord and go looking for the opportunity to share a meal with someone who needs that meal. I think that's a great challenge for us. Jesus revealed himself when he shared the hospitality. We reveal Jesus in us when we become the hospitable people ourselves. Let's pray. Father, your word is incredibly challenging. And we do want to be like Jesus. But we know that means us taking some big risks. So help us, Father, to be open to the prompting of your spirit, to pray with an open heart, to look with our eyes wide open. Who is it that you want us to share with hospitality with this week? May that be for your glory. And may they recognize Jesus as we break bread with them. We ask in his name.